say it's an unspoken rule within that community, but these people all know what they're then going to have to deal with if they participate in something that is not sanctioned by Bob Ross Hi, I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest art news story down to earth. Love him or laugh at him, Bob Ross is absolutely one of America's best-known painters. Maybe it's best-known painter in terms of name recognition. Not bad for someone who spent no more than 30 minutes on each of his landscape paintings. Heck, I've even argued that 2020 was something like the year of Bob Ross. In October, a quarter century after he died, a Bob Ross experience debuted in Indiana— Meanwhile, Bob Ross Inc. continues to mint money, authorizing new products, last year even licensing a cannabis company to make Bob Ross eyeshadows in his signature colors. People around the world still pay to become official Bob Ross certified painting instructors, and most of all, the internet has let more people than ever discover old episodes of Bob Ross's PBS show, The Joy of Painting, which ran from 1983 to 1994. In an age of memes, social media, and anxiety, Bob Ross's big hair, calming on-camera demeanor, and affirmative art philosophy have made him an icon with deep and maybe even growing appeal. But there's another side to the Bob Ross story, one investigated in the just-released Netflix documentary Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal, and Greed, produced by the actress Melissa McCarthy's production company, It describes Ross's rise to fame and connection with fans, but also tells the story of the battle behind the scenes for control of the Bob Ross empire. On one side are Annette and Walt Kowalski, Bob Ross's longtime business partners. Annette and Walt met Bob in 1982, let Bob and his family live with them, and helped manage his rise from popular painting instructor to PBS sensation. Today, the Kowalskis control Bob Ross, Inc. and all things Bob Ross, and remain a shadow presence in the documentary, having refused access. On the other side is Steve Ross, Bob Ross's son, a painter himself, and a sometimes guest on The Joy of Painting, where his father sometimes spoke of Steve as his heir apparent. Today, Steve remains shut out of his father's empire. He accuses the Kowalskis of maneuvering to seize control of his father's name, even while Bob suffered from the lymphoma that ultimately took his life in 1995. Joshua Rofay, the director of Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal, and Greed, is here to talk about trying to crack the riddle of Bob Ross's life and understand the bitter fight to control his legacy, both in terms of money and meaning. Well, Joshua, thanks for being on The Art Angle. Thank you for having me. So I was delighted to see that you were doing this film. I've written about Bob Ross. I've actually argued that we're in something about Bob Ross Renaissance, that is, it's not just that he's still popular, but I think that he's more popular than ever for a variety of reasons. The internet and just the fact that he's speaking on a wavelength that people are picking up right now. So I guess I just thought I'd start by asking you, how did you come to this project? What got you interested in Bob Ross? So I didn't grow up watching Bob. I had just missed him. I was a little bit too young. But I definitely became aware of him in the last handful of years when he sort of exploded by way of social media and memes and all of that. And so then I went back and I started watching him. And 
I think like everybody else, I just, I found him so calming. No matter what was going on in my life, when I put on an episode of his show, I felt better. I wasn't thinking about anything. I wasn't worried about anything. I found him incredibly likable, regardless of how jaded I could be. He sort of transcended whatever I thought I was or wasn't into. And so a couple of years ago, I've just given very sort of initial top line thoughts to maybe making a documentary that explored the relationships that various artists had with the era that they lived in and the sort of peak of their artistic powers. And Bob Ross was a name on that list. So that was just sort of in the back of my mind. And I had just begun to do maybe a tiny bit of due diligence on that, but not that much. I have a producing partner, his name's Steven Berger, and we had a meeting with Ben Falcone and Melissa McCarthy's executive at their production company. Her name's Divya D'Souza. You know, you get set up and sort of sent by your reps on these general meetings where you're going to go and you're going to meet people and maybe you'll vibe creatively. Maybe something will come up that you want to work on. But the truth is usually not. This particular meeting, we really hit it off with Divya and she mentioned how much Ben and Melissa loved Bob Ross and that they had been thinking maybe they'd make a scripted film about him. But when they went to do the sort of cursory searches online for just any info, the information available was so limited, certainly not enough to then start writing a screenplay from a place that was well-informed. And so when she said that, I just right away said, well, maybe we should make the doc and we can find out whatever there is to find out. Again, very general though, right? We're not even to the happy accidents part yet, let alone to the betrayal and greed. Yeah, exactly. So then a few weeks later, we sat down with Ben and Melissa, and it's one of my favorite meetings I've ever had because there was nothing show busy about it. It was just for however long that meeting lasted, all we did was talk about Bob Ross and sort of how much we appreciated him and why we appreciated him. And we just left it saying, okay, let's, maybe there's something to do here. Let's see what happens. But we knew we wanted to at least try to pursue this together. And then we went ahead and did the thing you do when you're making a doc, which is in the case where the main person has passed, you reach out to the people that you can find who knew them, who were close to them, who worked with them. And we started reaching out to people who worked with Bob, who knew Bob. And we were coming up against two things. One was it was clear that they all loved Bob. They missed him very much. And the other thing was that they were afraid to talk about him publicly for fear of some sort of legal retaliation by an entity that they refused to name. It was in those moments that I knew I had to pursue making this film and trying to tell his story. That's really the origin point. Really? So it's really like the idea of the documentary started out before you knew about all the contentious stuff about his legacy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You set out on one track and then you need to just let it take you where it's going to take you. Usually where it's going to take you is much more interesting than than any place you started. So, like you said, I think people know the persona of Bob Ross, but he was a very private guy. People might know a little bit about his personal history, like that he started painting when he was in the Air Force in Alaska. But go ahead and give a thumbnail sketch of what you found about the kind of origin story of Bob Ross, the painter. Bob was just a regular guy who loved to paint and Long before he had a TV show where he was known for painting and lauded for it, he's the best painter in class. He would show up and everybody would sort of stop what they were doing to watch what he was doing at his easel. He had a real knack and skill for it, even decades before 
he had his show. So that was one of the things I loved to see confirmed. I love the idea of somebody working at something for years and years and years before everybody discovers how sort of great they are at it. And he got this show, which in many ways was a dream for him to be able to make his living painting. It afforded him a, an amazing life and some amazing inspired times, but art and commerce, right? It's going to turn sour at some point. That's just a guarantee. Any successful artist in any field can tell you stories of their own experience with that. And not everyone ends up in a legal battle, but you as an artist will have a pit in your stomach at some point once you really start making a living doing this thing that you would literally pay to do. That was true of Bob's situation as well. Well, and, and that sort of gets to the crux or the heart of this story, which is sort of about Bob Ross's relationship with Annette and Walt Kowalski and their part in his rise to fame, which was almost like, if I understand it in relationship to what you just said, that he kind of put the commercial side of what he was doing into their lap. Is that right? Yeah. As I understand it from the people that we interviewed who knew him and were close to him, that's correct. Who were they? Who are Annette and Walt Kowalski and what are their role in his story? They were a couple who he had previously actually worked at the CIA. When they met Bob, actually, they were coming off of a really horrible tragedy. Their son died. And Annette couldn't pull herself off the couch, as you can imagine. Any parent would be rendered devastated in a way that's unspeakable. But what she did see when she was just sort of comatose on the couch for months on end was Bill Alexander, this man who was painting on TV. He's another TV painter, someone that Bob Ross learned from. Exactly. And so she thought, oh, maybe I can take a class from him when Walt called. They said, well, he's not teaching anymore, but there's a protege of his named Bob Ross, and you can take a class from him. And Bob's classes, they last a couple days, two, three days. And so she went and took this class and had a transcendent experience. The legend goes that she was relieved of her grief in a way that she hadn't been previously. And the Kowalskis went to Bob afterwards and said, you're amazing. You got to keep doing this. I think Annette's exact words actually in the piece of archival footage in the film are, I think we ought to bottle it and sell it. That was music to Bob's ears. These were basically the first two people who really believed in him from a business standpoint, who were willing to put up money and bet on him. And then they entered into this partnership, which went really, really well for quite a few years. It didn't go sideways until very late in the relationship. That's the sort of starting point for Walt and Annette and Bob's life. Yeah, and they refused to be interviewed for this documentary. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And so really, the opposite pole to them, the person who the story is sort of told most in relationship to is Steve Ross, who's Bob Ross's son and a presence on the show. And it's really his story of being shot shut out of his father's legacy that's kind of the center of the film. How did you come across Steve and what's his story? Steve was one of the people we reached out to early, but he was hard to get a hold of initially. But once we got a hold of him, we just had a bunch of conversations and we talked and we talked and we talked. And eventually I think he felt comfortable enough with us to just say, yeah, I, I trust you to do this. I'm willing to sit down on camera. Although he was definitely nervous what a strange thing it must be to have somebody come out of nowhere and ask to make a film about basically the most painful thing in your life. When I think of this film, more than anything, I think of the father-son story and that dynamic. I think of Steve, who is 
of course, a grown adult now, but I think of him as this 20-something-year-old kid who lost his father to cancer. Yeah, for people who don't know who are listening, Bob Ross died pretty young. He was only 52. He died from lymphoma in 1995. The wound from that is still so wrong. And so beyond the legal back and forth from the both sides, beyond all of that, I really think of this as a film that is about a son just trying to make peace with the loss of his father in addition to the fight over his legacy. And so maybe let's go into that fight or the legacy, which, like you said, dates from relatively late in the story, 1992 or so. But as Steve tells it, Bob Ross's wife dies and they had, according to Steve, he says, in the beginning, there was a voting system set up. When Jane died, he lost a vote. Suddenly, Bob's opinion didn't matter anymore. It was more or less you are going to do what we want you to do, speaking of the Kowalskis. And the idea being that they sort of, towards the end of his life, made a move to control Bob Ross's image. And Steve, by his account, which is a motivated account, but it's what he says in the film, is he has uh, stories of hearing his dad say, you know, they're trying to steal my name on my deathbed. Yeah, I mean, there's documentation that exists that are highlighted in the film that make it clear that Bob, he wanted his son to be the benefactor along with his half-brother of the rights to his name and likeness. He wanted to leave it to them. Without going into all of the minutia legally, I want to make it clear that the Kowalskis absolutely, from a legal standpoint, are the rightful owners of Bob's rights to his image and likeness and all of that. What the film is examining and asking is a question that is a bit deeper and more abstract, and that is, what is right here? The wishes of a dying man, as it relates to who will own his legacy, essentially, or this other party who they certainly legally arrived at owning the rights, but from a moral standpoint, how do we feel about it and what do we think? That's where things get messy emotionally, and I think that that is part of what makes the story so compelling is because when that is mixed into the tragedy of losing his father in such an abrupt way due to cancer, Steve Ross is left with a lot to contend with. So it's about the personal dimension, the question of who owns the memory of Bob Ross. But then there's also a lot of questions about what that legacy even means, because there's this entire Bob Ross empire of products built on his name and his likeness and his popularity. And you mentioned before that the Kowalskis said, whatever you've got, I want to bottle it and sell it. And that's certainly what they've done as the people who control Bob Ross, Inc. So how much did Bob Ross himself have to do with the kind of like Bob Ross merch empire? It remains murky. The sort of level that the merchandising has risen to in the last few years has nothing to do with Bob. I mean, we're talking about there's Bob Ross paints, but there's also a Bob Ross Monopoly game and and a Bob Ross Magic the Gathering set that was released last year. So it's not just a small thing. It's a growing part of what he means. Bob Ross energy drinks. I mean, everything you can think of. The question remains, is that what Bob would have wanted? Obviously, that's an unanswerable question. The people closest to him don't seem to think so. There's no evidence that we have seen that points to him definitively wanting what is being done. 
despite claims that have been made to the contrary. But ultimately, I think this story is about so much more than that. That's just one small component. I mean, do you, while on your deathbed, want to be engaged in battles with your business partners? How would any of us feel if a loved one of ours was experiencing that? I mean, we'd be horrified. And so that's the bigger piece to me. And then ultimately, all of this darkness is transcended by something very specific, and that is the magic of Bob. The products aside, he endures not because his face has become a chia pet. He endures because when you watch a clip of him from his show, he just has this unexplainable ability to transcend everything and just make you feel good, make you feel better, make you feel calm. Yeah, I mean, I should say that for people who are worried about this, that it's called Bob Ross Happy Accidents, Betrayal and Greed, but, you know, it doesn't lift the lid on Bob Ross. I mean, it seems to me, and I think people say things to this effect in the film, that he more or less was the person that you think he was. He seems Mm -hmm. to have been a genuinely nice person whose main concern was spreading the gospel of finding happiness through painting, the joy of painting. Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, he's more than what you saw in 30 minutes on the show, and he's more than what you see in a meme. Bob was a good person. He was a flawed person like everybody else. But talking to people who knew him, I mean, they loved him. One of the things that everybody expressed was he had such a deep desire to connect with people, and he really, he cared about people. Even when he got really famous, he didn't want to just show up at the event or the whatever it was and make the appearance and get out of there. He really wanted to take time with people. Not everybody's like that. We go into a few things in the film for sure that make it clear that we're not trying to portray him as, you know, some sort of perfect god of an icon, but he cared about people and he wanted to connect. I think that that's probably what shines through more than anything when you're watching a show. So the film touches briefly on this whole other world of TV do-it-yourself painters that I didn't really know about from the era, including Gary and Catherine Jenkins, who did a PBS show that was about painting flowers. And another thing that comes up in the film about the transition of Bob Ross's legacy in the later part of its existence into a kind of a more cutthroat proposition, how they believe that the Kowalskis sort of consciously tried to take over their kind of niche in flower painting during the time when it was clear that Bob Ross was not going to be around forever in the mid-90s. That's what they believe, and they certainly made their case in the film, and they brought some really compelling uh, examples to the table in terms of comparing their own floral books versus Annette Kowalski's floral books. But that is their position. And that's one of the few moments the Jenkinses do say that Bob Ross knew what was going on, that they were personal friends with Bob Ross. They knew him from trade shows. They knew him from the PBS world. And they say he was around Annette so much. How could he not know? Because this is, to be clear, Annette Kowalski on the Bob Ross show creating something called the joy of painting flowers in an effort to kind of pass the torch of a Bob Ross painting. So is there anything more about that? How much she knew about these kind of machinations? We don't know and we'll never know, but it was important to us as the filmmakers to include that because it was important to the Jenkins. And 
It just sort of goes back to what I said about we're in no way trying to paint him as, you know, some perfect, flawless man. But I think the decency certainly outweighed anything that you felt could be questionable. Even the Jenkins go on to say, but what could he even have done about it? Yeah, I mean, which is remarkable because they lost sponsors and they basically kind of were crowded out of the painting niche that they had worked in. They still clearly have tremendous affection for Bob all these years later. Part of this puzzle is the whole Bob Ross instructor world, the whole world of the Bob Ross painting school, which has grown up around his name, which the Bob Ross Inc. controls. And what's sort of fascinating about it is that the Bob Ross method is all about being non-judgmental, kind of feeling better, welcoming happy thoughts into your head. And then with the kind of corporatization of the kind of legacy, it does sound like there's this tight control on what you can do as a Bob Ross instructor. You put up a text on the screen that says, I believe this is from a student, says, I lived under communist rule for five years in Vietnam, three years of which I spent in prison. The way BRI, that's Bob Ross, Inc. ran the class reminds me of life under the communist regime. Everyone was encouraged to suspect everyone else, which is maybe overstatement, but tell me a little bit about what you found about the instruction. Isn't that wild? When I saw that copy of that email, it blew my mind. And yeah, I mean, you make a fair point. Maybe somebody's overreacting, but still you got to feel pretty strongly to even be driven to an overreaction. The kernel of that is that you can't promote any other artist that's part of a contract you sign and you can only use official Bob Ross Inc. products. They run a tight ship compared to other painting classes that I've looked into. Obviously, it's their right to do so, but... It's a really tightly run factory, and there's a lot of people who became really disillusioned by that and were uncomfortable with that because it just didn't seem to be in line with the free-flowing bit of joy that Bob stood for and promoted. You're not there as part of some military operation. You're there to paint. You're there to create. And yet here are all these very stringent corporate guidelines that you know made a lot of people feel uncomfortable. Another thread in the story that I don't know what to make of, actually, is this brief clip with Bert Effing, who's the former managing director of Bob Ross Inc. in Europe. And he talks about how during his time working with Bob Ross Inc., he saw a guy in a warehouse signing Bob Ross paintings. This is after Bob Ross's passing. So I don't actually know what to make of that. What's being implied there? Do you have any sense? I think it's very obvious what's being implied. He's suggesting that people are forging Bob's signature. Where those paintings are then going, nobody knows. Right. That was what was mystifying about me. Is there like a big Bob Ross art market that I don't know about? If there is, I'm unaware. I mean, we all know that the majority of the paintings are sitting in a warehouse in Virginia at the headquarters for Bob Ross, Inc. Bert saw it and was befuddled by it and found it to be pretty disturbing. Where it goes from there, I'm not sure. Yeah, right. It's a suggestion that there's this whole other world going on, which is why it is a little, like you said at the beginning, when you started researching this, there was this dark force or there was this story that you couldn't quite get at. And you've uncovered a lot of that story, but it still does feel like there's a lot of stuff out there that can't be known. One of the points you make early in the film is just how many people couldn't or didn't want to talk to you. Yeah, more than a dozen. A lot of them would drop out even the night before we were scheduled to film. Yeah, one of our first trips, five people dropped out a night and two nights before their scheduled interviews. 
I mean, when something like that happens, when you're making a doc, there's a part of you that wonders if you're even going to be able to make it. But then what I quickly came around to and realized was that actually this is why we're telling this story. This is the very reason to tell the story. That's the thing that sort of sparked for me originally, which was people were afraid to talk. And the question is why? And so if there are only a handful of people who are willing to tell you why, that's, in my opinion, even more powerful than 50 people being willing to line up. And why? Why are they? Is fear of litigation, essentially, from Bob Ross Inc.? That's correct. That's correct. Is there documented litigation where they've sued people for talking? Or I don't want to get myself into any sort of territory that I would be advised not to step into. But there are other cases that we're aware of that we saw all of the court transcripts for where other people were involved in cases with Bob Ross Inc. And I don't want to say it's an unspoken rule within that community, but these people all know what they're then going to have to deal with if they participate in something that is not sanctioned by Bob Ross Inc. And there is quite a bit of money on the other side. I mean, from your investigations, do you have any sense of the size of Bob Ross Inc.? That's a big company that makes millions of dollars every year. So you did hear at the end of this process, apparently after you wrapped the movie, you did hear from the Kowalskis rebutting or responding to what they understood your point to be. What did they say? They denied the allegations that were made in the film. You know, that didn't come as a surprise. I wish they would have sat down and done an interview with us. We asked multiple times. You said Walt Kowalski was a CIA agent and recorded all his business calls. And apparently, you know, I guess it's a detail we'll never know more about that Bob Ross learned that skill and was recording his own business calls. And in this lawsuit, there's a reference to how prior to the death of Robert N. Ross, certain tape recordings were made of conversations between Robert N. Ross and other persons regarding business matters of Bob Ross, Inc. They were obtained in a lawsuit and I guess probably destroyed. So the idea is that there was data that was collected about the transfer of the Bob Ross empire, but that, I guess, remains a black hole. Yeah, he was recording his calls at the end of his life which allegedly were these sort of knockdown, drag-out arguments over the business with the Kowalskis. And those tapes, they were referenced in documents from a particular lawsuit, and those tapes needed to be turned over to Bob Ross, Inc. And the assumption is that his third wife was in possession of those. And whether they exist or not, I doubt they do. If they do, then Bob Ross, Inc. would be in possession of those. But one would have to assume that they're long gone. Yeah, so somewhere there's the secret Bob Ross tapes that he put together, but the world will never know. Believe me, when we heard about those, we certainly tried to find them, but I think it's as simple as they don't exist anymore, and they haven't for decades. I mean, the fact that he was recording his own calls, that does suggest a certain climate of paranoia that's out of step with the comforting and familiar Bob Ross that people know. Absolutely, and I think one of the interesting things in the film is when you see certain clips of him on his show where you know that he was in the middle of turmoil in terms of his relationship with the Kowalskis having soured. And you can see that he's upset on his show because you have the context for where he was in his life at that point. You know what was going on. If you didn't have that context, you would have no idea that, oh my God, he's angry now. But then you have this information and you can see that he's sort of relishing the opportunity to just say his piece, even if it's in code obviously send a message to whoever he's trying to send it to because everybody who's making the show with, they're all going to see them if they're not in the studio when he's even painting and filming. 
that was fascinating to just watch these episodes from later in the series and just see how pissed off he was in certain moments. But you only know that because you know what was going on at the time. So where is Steve Ross now? He's sort of the central figure in this documentary and obviously has no business connection to his father's empire, even though his father stated many times on the show that he considered his son his protege and wanted him to, in some capacity, be part of his legacy. Where's Steve Ross now? Steve is back out teaching painting. He didn't for years. He really fell into a deep depression after his father's death that lasted for a long time. It was Bob's good friend, even mentor in some ways when Steve was younger, Dana Jester. Dana was somebody who was on the show from time to time and taught painting uh, alongside Bob for years and was one of his closest confidants. Dana finally just got a hold of Steve and, you know, just gave him one of those, you need to do that thing again that brought you alive. You need to paint. You got to get back out there. And he slowly but surely started to paint again. That's the gift of what Bob left him that nobody can take away, which is if you love painting and, and you engage in this thing, you know, nobody owns the rights to that. What do you hope happens out of the documentary? You know, it ends with, it says, despite Bob's intention, Stephen has not received any of the profits to date. What do you hope happens? My, my hope is really that I just hope people feel a deeper connection to Bob than they previously did, that they understand his life and his pain and his joy in a way that is so much deeper than what you saw on the show or what you'll see in a meme. I hope that people just feel a, a much deeper emotional connection to him moving forward. Yeah, you know, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, his general niceness is such a bomb to people. And this idea that the painting is your happy place, like here's a place where you're completely in charge. And I think that's clearly why people are actually increasingly drawn to the joy of painting is this sense of how soothing it is. is. Is there any part of you that worries that a documentary that adds betrayal and greed to his legacy is sort of harshing people's buzz? No, because I think that once you know all of that, I think you appreciate what he brought to the table even more. I know I did. Well, Joshua, I think that is a perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And good luck with the documentary. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also take a moment to rate and review us. I hate to ask, but we work hard on the show and it will help other listeners discover what we're doing. And if you have some feedback or maybe a recommendation for a future episode, go ahead and email us at podcasts at artnet.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at artnet.com. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. 